on the south coast of the state of Alabama on Mobile Bay in the United States is a yacht club called the Fair Hope Yacht Club. And every year in the spring, I think it's the spring, the Dauphin Island Regatta is held. Dauphin Island is 18 nautical miles in a straight line from the Fair Hope Yacht Club. In 2015, the Dauphin Island Regatta ended in tragedy. A tragedy that could have and really should have been avoided. 125 boats entered the regatta, 475 sailors. Eight of the boats withdrew, and here's why. The day before the regatta, the National Weather Service issued a warning saying there would be severe weather in the area. So the day of the regatta, the Fairhope Yacht Club announced on its website that the regatta was cancelled. Eight of the boats withdrew. But then for some reason... The Yacht Club announced that the cancellation had been uncancelled, and so the regatta would go ahead anyway. Bad weather, challenging weather. Yeah, but you know, bad weather is nothing new down in on the Gulf Coast in the United States, and sailors are used to that tough weather, and even in bad weather, sailors sail, and so sail they did. But this wasn't just bad weather, this was calamitous weather. The weather got up to hurricane strength. 40 boats were, uh, no, it wasn't 40, I beg your pardon. 10 boats were destroyed or sank. 40 people were rescued and six people died. It was a rare disaster of this, of this kind. And the disaster simply shouldn't have happened because everybody was aware that there was danger. The problem is when danger is mentioned, there are some people who are like, you know, I'm okay, I can handle the danger. Particularly people who would say, well, we are experienced sailors. It's surely not going to be all that bad. We'll be okay and we will ride it out. But in this case, the danger really was all that bad. And there were people who were not able to ride it out. In life, there are times when you see danger And it's really not that dangerous. But there are other times that you see danger and it really is dangerous. And that's true spiritually. Because the Bible tells us that planet Earth is about to confront a storm, a terrible storm, relentless in its fury. It's only those who hang on to Jesus and make the Bible their guide who will be able to ride this storm out. Now, frequently you see a situation and you say, oh, that's not dangerous, or I can handle that, or nothing bad will happen. But the devil gets us that way. The word of God says that the devil often comes along, he transforms himself as an angel of light. So you don't always see deceptions, you don't always see spiritual danger as being spiritually dangerous. As a matter of fact, you might see something that represents spiritual danger and you might think, Oh, that's perfectly okay. That's what you think when you see an angel of light. You heard about this 20-year-old boy in Sydney? He was with his mates. They were having a party, having a few beers, and one of them saw a slug crawling across a picnic table, and they said to the boy, eat the slug, man, eat the slug. He said, sure, I'll eat the slug. Who wouldn't do something gross like that? So he grabbed that slug, put it in his mouth, swallowed it, washed it down, 
and ended up contracting from that slug a terrible, terrible disease, which eventually took his life. He was just being a bit of a a larrikin, just playing around, you know, didn't realize that the danger was that dangerous. If someone had said, you could get sick doing that, he'd probably say, oh, I could, but I won't. And if I do, it won't be bad, but it was bad. You wouldn't expect a prank to end up ultimately with a funeral service. Danger doesn't always look like danger. The devil sees to that. But there is danger coming for planet Earth in Earth's last days. Revelation chapter 13 talks about it. This is John writing. John wrote Revelation from on the island of Patmos, a Greek island actually closer to Turkey than to Greece. And he wrote these words. He was under house arrest on the island of Patmos. Then I stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And on his horns, ten crowns. And on his heads, the name of blasphemy, or in fact, a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed, and the Bible says... And all the world marveled and did what? Followed the beast. And they did what? Worshipped the dragon. Let's pause there. The dragon represents who? The devil. It says that in the previous chapter. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast who is able to make war with them? want to say this as we look at the subject. I don't want to embarrass anybody today or have you end up feeling uneasy. We want to study the Bible to discover what God's message is for us in these last days. Jesus is coming back soon. So you've got to look at the challenging subjects. You can't always be reading the book of Psalms. You know, sometimes you've got to go. You've got to get some roughage in your diet. God wants us to consider and understand these subjects because look at this. This is a time of absolute spiritual ruin coming for planet Earth, the world wandering after the beast. So we look at this carefully. The Bible says the truth will make you free. In Revelation chapter 14, it says, a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink also of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out, full strength into the cup of his indignation and so on. Anyone who receives the mark of the beast cannot be saved. We're not saying anyone who receives the mark of the beast cannot go to the zoo or walk in the park. Anyone who receives this will be lost without the hope of salvation. And so the Lord God would have us read this and understand. The Bible, what's interesting, actually interprets itself. I remember being a child and pulling down the big old family Bible from off the bookcase shelf, the old Reader's Digest Bible, and reading through some of the chapters in the book of Revelation and trying to figure out what they could possibly mean. But it's like looking at a locked door and trying to figure out how you get in. I tell you how you get in. You need a key. And if you want to interpret and understand the prophecies of the Bible, you need a key. 
Those keys are found in the Bible. And when it comes to the book of Revelation, they're found especially in the book of Daniel. Let me tell you why. I believe I've mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating. The book of Revelation is a New Testament book, but it is founded on the Old Testament prophecies. John wrote the book of Revelation, a lot of it using signs and symbols. You could say code. You could say that. Where do you get the keys to unlock the mysteries? Well, in the Old Testament. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. About three quarters of them quote from or contain allusions to the Old Testament scriptures. So without looking at the Old Testament, it's just guesswork. And some of the guesswork is, is I would say laughable, but it's nothing to laugh at. Some of the guesswork is irresponsible. So let's go to the Old Testament scriptures that John had in mind when he wrote the New Testament book of Revelation. We start in Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel writes, in the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring upon the great sea. And four great, what? Beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. He says in verse 17, these great beasts, which are four, are four what? Kings that arise out of the earth. This is a symbol. Beast is a symbol. So when the Bible speaks about a beast in earth's last days, it's not an insult. It's not any kind of epithet. It's just symbolic language. It means really kind of like a a living creature. Verse 23 says, the fourth beast shall be the fourth what? Kingdom. So that's clear. You've got a symbol. A beast represents a kingdom or a nation. Now you've got another one because the beast came up out of the sea. Revelation 17, 15 interprets that. The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So consider this. In prophecy, in prophecy, a beast represents a kingdom. That doesn't mean every time you see a lion, it's talking about Babylon. A beast represents a kingdom in Bible prophecy. Seas represent multitudes of people. And I'll give you another one. The wind is used as a symbol to represent strife and warfare. So we go on in Daniel. We read in Daniel chapter 7. The first beast was like a lion and it had eagle's wings. I'm going to give you the shortcut way of interpreting this. In Daniel chapter 2, you have an image, a great big statue. Head of gold, chest and arms made out of, silver belly and thighs of, brass legs made out of iron feet of iron and clay so the head of gold was babylon chest and arms of silver represented medo-persia the midsection was greece the legs were of iron were rome well done and then rome divided into well we're not told how many nations but you'd figure because there are typically 10 toes on two feet into 10 nations over here in daniel chapter 7 you've got the same information it's repeated but it's elaborated on Daniel gives the same information again, but instead of using metals and a statue, he uses animals. So the first one was like a lion and had eagle's wings, and that lion with eagle's wings represents Babylon. It is a well-known fact. I told you I've been to Babylon. Babylon is a suburb on Long Island, just outside of New York City. And at Babylon, there is a marina, lots of boats parked, a big, tall concrete pillar on the top. What is it? A lion with eagle's wings. Not represented, not erected by a theologian, 
uh, erected by the people of the town because it's a known symbol of Babylon, lion with eagle's wings. So that's the first beast. The Bible says suddenly another beast, a second like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. Well, we know already the second uh, kingdom in the statue was Medo-Persia. It's the same over here, the Medo-Persians. It's, it's kind of risen up on one side because the Persians were more powerful than the Medes, has three ribs in its mouth because on its way to power, it destroyed three nations. Babylon, then Medo-Persia, and now Daniel 7 and verse 6. After this, I looked and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. This is the kingdom of Greece, the kingdom led by Alexander. Some would like him to be called Alexander the Macedonian, and I think that's fair. So that's the third kingdom, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. And then Daniel saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong it had huge iron teeth it was devouring the bible says breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet it was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had what 10 horns in daniel chapter 2 10 toes i know you know it doesn't say 10 toes it says toes two feet toes you can assume 10 you can be sure 10 because over here in daniel 7 10 horns And so this is really interesting. The fourth beast, the fourth nation, Rome. Daniel 2, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Daniel 7, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. But here's more information given. This one has 10 horns. And we're not done yet because the Bible goes on to say, the 10 horns are 10 kings who shall arise from this kingdom. And another shall rise after them. Now that's interesting. We've got the flow of nations But who's this other horn that will rise after them? Daniel says in verse 8, I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them. It's interesting that over the years, many Bible commentators have correlated the little horn in Daniel 7 with that beast, that nation in Revelation chapter 13, which does such great spiritual damage, even though people are looking at the storm clouds and saying, I think I shall go sailing today. It's the same power. So we want to identify this little horn in uh, Daniel chapter 7. Who is it? Well, if you read the Bible, you read in Daniel chapter 7 that Daniel wrote, I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another little horn. So let's look at the evidence the Bible gives us. It's little. Daniel 7 verse 8, I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them. Where's this? It's Western Europe. Rome divided into 10 nations. The Heruli, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals were destroyed, wiped out. But the others, the other seven, the Suevi, the Alamanni, the Lombards, the Anglo-Saxons, the Visigoths, uh, 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 the Franks, and the Burgundians, they survived to this day. So those are nations that we recognize as nations of Western Europe. Um, Italy and 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 Spain and uh, Great Britain and Switzerland and so forth. The little horn came up among them. Geographically, we know where to look for this. We know to look in Western Europe to try to identify this little horn. The Bible says something really interesting. 
I'm going to read it to you. I need to turn in my Bible to Daniel chapter 7 and find this verse so that I read it accurately for you. In Daniel chapter 7, you read in verse 24. This is really important. The ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them. Those ten horns were all set in place by the year 476 A.D. So if the little horn is going to come after them, it will rise up after 476 A.D. Now, I would understand if you would sit there saying, so what? But I want you to consider the so what. There are people who will tell you that the Antichrist was Nero. Nero. But Nero did not come along after 476 A.D. Cannot have been him. There is a school of prophetic interpretation known as preterism. Preterism. Pre-terism. Pre means before, previously. And preterists believe that all of the prophecies in the book of Revelation that we think, I would say, pertain to the last days, have already been fulfilled. And that beast, that antichrist, Nero, who came along before 476 A.D., So while you say, the answer is, once you start putting these things together, you eliminate a lot of false theories, and it helps you understand the mind of the heart of God. It helps you understand the love of God for you, draws you to Jesus, and it eliminates a lot of false teaching. Daniel 7 and verse 8 says that three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. This little thing would destroy three nations. It says, in it were eyes like the eyes of a man, indicating that there would be a man at the head of whatever this is. Remember, a beast is a kingdom or a nation. So it would be ruled by a man. That's an important point. In Daniel 7 and verse 25, you read where it says, and he shall speak great words against the Most High. Revelation 13 says he speaks great words and blasphemies. Great words against God, that's blasphemy. This is a blaspheming power. It says in verse 25 that he shall, oh, I'm looking in verse 23, that won't help me. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. That means there's persecution against the people of God. And will think to change times and laws. That's an important one. And then the last one, the ninth one says, it shall rain for, and the word of God says, time and times and the dividing of time. Now, this is one we need to do a little bit of investigation on. A time, times, and the dividing of time. This word time means a year. Times means more than one year, but it's not plural, it's dual. One year, two years, and half a year. There's a couple of ways you could go about this. You could simply say, in the book of Daniel and Revelation, this one time period is mentioned seven times. Once it says 42 months. Once it says time, times, and half a time. Other times it says 1,260 days. Why would it be 1,260 days? Because in three and a half years, there's 42 months. And the months that they dealt with in Bible times had 30 days in them, 1,260 days. Now, remember the principle. Remember the symbol. In Bible prophecy, a day represents a a year. So where it says a time, times, and half a time, those 1,260 days are in actual fact 1,260, I want you to tell me, 
years. It's important that you know that. So those are nine points right there, nine points. This entity would rule for 1,260 years. We get those points from the Bible, the Word of God. We're not guessing. But what's interesting today is that the subject of the Beast of Revelation chapter 13 is a bit of an industry all of its own, you know. A lot of speculation, books written, videos sold, TV programs made. What's fascinating is that today, Christians are all over the page on this. All over the page. And you'll have people telling you that the the beast in the book of Revelation is King Juan Carlos of Spain. People will tell you it's Prince Charles. So while Prince Charles is in his glass house wearing his kilt and talking to his potted plants, he's actually hatching the spiritual demise of the world. Really? No, this is just where people go with this. It's kind of funny. And I mean no disrespect to the future king. I mean no disrespect at all. It's just hard to imagine that the son of Queen Elizabeth II is the danger figure in the close of time who's going to lead most of the world to hell. Hard to imagine that because it's not what the Bible says. Today what's popular is to look for a shadowy figure in the Middle East, a political ruler. Christians are all over the page, but if you would remember your history and go back just a little while, you would recall, you would remember, you would recognize that Christianity virtually as a whole was in unanimity as to who this little horn was. And it's important that we remember. So let me take you back to the year 1517. It was October the 31st. A young priest named Martin Luther made a bold stand. You know what he did? He took some sheets of paper on which were written 95 theses, we call them. And he walked from his home in Wittenberg along next to the stinking canal, along down here. I should remember the name of the the street because I've walked on it many times. He walked about a kilometer And he walked to the door of the castle church and he took those 95 theses and he nailed them to the door of the castle church. They were 95 points of protest that Martin Luther wrote speaking against what he considered to be be the abuses of the ruling church in that day. Now, my friends, in 1517, the church ruled and ruled fiercely. The church would threaten kingdoms, would threaten monarchs. The church had some tricks up its sleeve, you know, some aces in its back pocket. They would say things such as, if you, the kingdom, and you, the ruler, don't do what we, the church, says, we will place your whole kingdom under interdict. Now, you would shrug and say, what is that? In 1517, people didn't shrug. They feared because the church essentially said, we're closing the churches. You can't get married in a church uh, wedding service. You can't be buried in a church funeral service. You can't receive the sacraments. In other words, you're essentially all going to hell and the blessings of heaven have been shut. Now, if someone says that to you, our church is shutting heaven to you, you can laugh in their face and say, don't be pathetic. But in 1517, 501 and a half years ago, People were terrified by that sort of thing. The church abused people routinely. They said in order to build their great big church in Rome, they said, 
You can pay money and be forgiven of sin. Pay money. And when the coin clinks into the bottle, uh, sorry, into the bottom of the money chest, you can know that your past, present, and future sins have been forgiven. In fact, if you put money in the box, your mother, who is in purgatory now, is released from purgatory and goes to heaven. Who wouldn't do that? You'd be, you'd be selling your home to put money in that box to get your loved ones out of purgatory and into heaven. I'm sure you'd do that. The church ruled. It ruled the minds of men and women, and the scriptures were not accessible to everyday people. Martin Luther saw the teachings of the church, saw the abuses of the church. He was so ticked off about the selling of indulgences, pay money and you can go to heaven, pay money and your sins would be forgiven, that he wrote these 95 theses, nailed them to the door and encouraged them, encouraged people to read them so that debate and discussion could be held. Now, while he was doing that, Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic priest and he still loved his church. He was hoping to reform his church, hence the Reformation. But Luther's church wouldn't be reformed. In fact, they sentenced Luther to death. They succeeded before a time in executing Jan Hus, the Bohemian reformer. They killed his friend and partner in ministry, Jerome, and they executed countless people who dared teach the word of God. John Wycliffe, the English man who was referred to as the morning star of the Reformation, they didn't get him. He died first. So after the fact, they dug up his body and then burned his dead body and cast his ashes into the River Swift, which went into the Avon, which went into the sea. Kind of funny. Wycliffe went all around the world, just like his message had done. Martin Luther came to the conclusion after studying the Bible, after examining his church, he came to the conclusion that only the Vatican City fulfilled all of those specifications found in Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13. It was a shocking conclusion, and it was not one that Martin Luther was in a hurry to come to. But he read the Bible, he studied the scripture, and he realized there was no other option. It was Rome, the Vatican. I'm not talking about the people who went to Rome's churches. Luther was not saying that. But Luther was saying that this thing is the Vatican. That's who it is. Luther wasn't alone. John Knox, the father of the Presbyterian Church, John Calvin, the father of the Reformed Church, Roger Williams, the first Baptist pastor on American soil who championed the idea of religious liberty, John Wesley, who founded the Methodist Church, they all taught that the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 and the beast or the nation of Revelation chapter 13 was the Vatican City. All of Protestantism so divided today was in agreement on this. So why would the Vatican find itself in the crosshairs of the reformers? Now go back again. We start with the kingdom of Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome. Rome would divide. Daniel 2 said Rome would divide. Rome was not conquered by another mighty nation. It just kind of fell apart. So you had a great, big, strong Roman Empire leading the way under the Caesars. And then its power just dissolved. There was a power vacuum. Who would step into the power vacuum? All eyes focused on the church. And the person who essentially ended up taking place of the Caesars of Rome was the Bishop of Rome. 
The Roman Emperor Justinian had declared that the Bishop of Rome was, and I quote now, the head of all the holy churches. In time, the Church of Rome would find itself the most influential nation on earth. Because the Church of Rome isn't just a church. It's a nation as well. It is a church state. But here was a problem. The Church of Rome grew into power. So who made the rules when it came to religious matters? The Church of Rome. And that was good as long as the teachings were accurate. And when the teachings were inaccurate, that became a problem. The Church of Rome believed in the worship or the veneration of idols. The Bible is against that. And you don't need to tell me, oh, no, no, the Church of Rome, they don't worship those idols. Ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you, I got down on my knees and prayed before them. That qualifies. The Church of Rome represents idol worship, you see. And so when the Church of Rome was making the rules, idol worship came flooding. And where did the idols came from? Came from paganism. Lots of pagans flooded into the Church of Rome, and the Church of Rome said, you can keep your idols. Just don't call them Jupiter. Maybe call it Peter. Just don't call it uh, whoever. Maybe call it Jesus. That's fine. Of course, it's not fine. So the Church of Rome wrestled with some challenges and didn't wrestle real well. The teaching of purgatory. The Roman Church taught that. So when the Roman Church came into spiritual power, universal spiritual power, the teaching of purgatory was taught. Of course there's no purgatory. You don't read about it in the Bible. The Bible says you're saved by grace through faith. Purgatory teaches that if you're not ready to go to heaven and you still have sin in your heart, then you go to purgatory where you are purged. It's purgatory where you are purged by fire and you suffer for your sins. That's terrible. It's absolutely opposed to the gospel of grace. Jesus died for your sins. You don't suffer for your sins. Confession to a priest came in and was universally applied because the church of Rome became all powerful. The church of Rome made the rules. Of course, confession to a priest is not biblical. It's very, very unbiblical. We have one mediator between God and men, according to Paul, who wrote to Timothy, the man Christ Jesus, you understand. So traditions started to take root and the Vatican was encouraging people to pray to the dead. But that doesn't work because we know that the dead are doing what? They are sleeping, you understand. Seek salvation through the sacraments. When you receive the bread, the communion bread, that's a sacrament. You need the sacrament of extreme unction, the sacrament of reconciliation. No, no, no. There's no sacramental blessing that comes to you. Confess your sins to God. Do that anytime. It's not a sacrament in God's eyes, certainly not in the Bible eyes. The Bible doesn't talk about sacraments. They are inventions of human beings, inventions of the Church of Rome. And the Church of Rome became all-powerful and enforced these dogmas upon everybody. So what we do is we look at these points in the Bible and we see they point in one direction. What we see is that down through time, when the church united with the state, the church stood on tradition and not on the Bible. There was an inevitable drift away from the Bible. And that's why Martin Luther came along and said, this thing needs to be reformed. It's not biblical. Confessing your sins to a priest? Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been two weeks since my last confession. Here are my sins. And I'd recite my list of sins, and the priest on the other side of that little gauze window thing would say, and I'm quoting now in Latin, ego, 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 te absolvo. I 
absolve you. Now, you can cut that, dice and slice that any way you want, but that's absolutely unbiblical, and it's completely ruinous to the soul. And that is a church stepping into God's place and saying, we'll provide forgiveness. Listen to us. We have the way to heaven. Come to us for sacraments, not go to Jesus. You don't need us. Come to us to worship and come to us to fellowship. But you and Jesus, that's the way. No, the church doesn't say that. The church says you must depend on us because we have stepped into the place of God. And Martin Luther and others said, no, that cannot be right. Let's relook at our list of, 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 of points here. Is it true that the Vatican is little? Very little. If you've ever been to the Vatican, it is a state. It's small, smallest country on the planet. It's small. Uh, second point is it would rise up among them. Did it rise up in uh, Western Europe? Yes, it did. The Vatican is in Rome. Rome is in Italy. This is in Western Europe. Did it rise up after them? Yes, it did. Uh, the, the Pope's absolute power was really granted to him in the year 538. 538. Sure, the church existed before then, but it was then that he was granted full license and full power. Did it destroy three nations? Yes, it did. The Heruli, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals. It's interesting, there was a theological disagreement. Rome said, if you won't join us, we will wipe you out. Funny thing is, Rome was right on this, and those three nations were wrong. But that's neither here nor there. Rome said to the Heruli, Ostrogoths, and Vandals, if you won't believe like us, you're done. They said, we won't, and they were, they were done. Is there a man at the head of this system? Yes, there is. There is a pope. And uh, there was a pope before, and presumably there'll be a pope again later. There's a pope, a man at the head of this system. Does the Vatican speak great words and blasphemies? Now, before you answer, let us read this. Jesus said in John chapter 10, so why are you going to stone me? What good work have I done that you want to stone me? And they answered and they said to him, For a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus, you understand, said in this passage, I and my father are one. Was that blasphemy for Jesus to say that? No, because Jesus, frankly, was God and is God. He is the son of God. He is divine. Jesus is, was God in human flesh. So it wasn't blasphemy. But for a human being to claim to be God, would that be blasphemy? Sure it would. And that's why I want to read this to you. The supreme teacher in the church is the Roman pontiff. Union of minds, therefore, requires, together with a perfect accord in the one faith, complete submission and obedience to the will of the church and to the Roman pontiff. Read it. Well, that's just blasphemy. And so that would be a very clear definition of great words and blasphemies. In an encyclical of Pope Leo XIII, this was written. Uh, Same man wrote, we, the church, hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. No disrespect to say, no, they don't. That's that's absolutely not accurate. But that's that's a, a blasphemous claim, truly blasphemous. Here's another one, another biblical definition of blasphemy. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus forgave sin. Was it blasphemy for Jesus to do that? No. Would it be blasphemy for a human being to claim to forgive sin? Would it be blasphemy if you came to me and said, I stole and I lied and, um, and I coveted something? Would it be blasphemy to say, 
I absolve you of sin. That'd be blasphemy. Now, if you came to me and said, I backed into your car, or it was me who stole your rake and never brought it back, and I said, that's okay, I forgive you. Is that okay? Sure. But to absolve from the penalty of sin, that is absolute blasphemy. But Pope John Paul II said that confession or the sacrament of reconciliation was being undermined by the sometimes widespread idea, listen, that one can obtain forgiveness directly from God, even in an habitual way, without approaching the sacrament of reconciliation. John Paul II was disturbed that people were going straight to God to have their sins forgiven. You should be commended for doing such a thing. Don't come to me, a pastor, a priest, a minister of religion, to get your sins forgiven. Go to God. If you have a burden, share your burden. If you wrong someone, maybe that's a horse of a different color. But the Pope was absolutely upset that people were going to God and not the church. The church claims to be able to forgive sin, and that is blasphemy. Great words and blasphemies. The church persecuted the people of God, true or not true. It's true. It's sad, but it's true. Millions and millions of people were put to death by the Roman Catholic papacy. This is really interesting. I took this photo myself when I was in uh, Rome. I've been there several times. It's really a wonderful city. This is on the outside of a church called the Church of the Jesu, G-E-S-U. It is the mother church for the Society of Jesus, which is the Jesuit order. Uh, it was found, founded by... Um, Say that again, I'm forgetting his name. Ignatius Loyola, I've been to his hometown, I've been to where he was born, I shouldn't have forgotten, pardon me. On the outside of the church, there are two of these statues, you can't miss them. And this is a likeness of Ignatius Loyola on the outside of the church. But what's he doing? He has his foot on somebody. Who is the somebody he has his foot on? It's a Protestant. Because the Jesuit order was founded to wipe out Protestantism. So this is the Church of Rome out in the open saying, we papists think that much of you Protestants. We will persecute you. We will wipe you out. It's really rather interesting. In fact, it's, it's violent and it's tremendously offensive. Uh, if you go to St. Peter's, that magnificent, huge church in the heart of the Vatican City, you'll see essentially the same chapter, but uh, 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 a statue, but it's really big. Again, this is Ignatius Loyola holding the constitutes of the, a constitution of the Society of Jesus in one hand, and he is stamping on, stepping on, treading on a sprawled out Protestant in between, uh, sorry, under his feet, because it was the aim of the Society of Jesus to eliminate Protestants. The Bible said that the church would persecute the people of God. The church itself is bragging about it. Now, back to the church of the Jesu. Oh, here's a close-up. That's his foot. That's a Protestant. Some say that's Martin Luther, but I haven't found any direct evidence that that's Martin Luther. But I'll show you Martin Luther. Luther's in this picture. And so you've got John Lu uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin sprawled out this way before Mary. Mary is depicted as casting them out of heaven. I spoke to a monsignor or something at that church. I said, what does that statue represent? And he said, casting out evil. Casting out evil. And that's Luther and Calvin 
Protestant reformers who taught the Bible considered to be evil. Now, down there in the bottom left-hand corner, that's an angel tearing pages out of a book. And you can't see it in the photograph, and I took the picture. But right there, it says, Swingly. So the angel is tearing pages out of the writings of the Protestant reformer, Ulrich Zwingli. So you see what the Church of Rome displays. I'm telling you, the Bible said that that church would persecute God's people. The church says, oh, you had better believe it. This is what we think of Protestants. Cast them down, tread them underfoot, and destroy their teachings and their writings. It's a fascinating thing. I'm sure you would agree. I have visited the very spot pretty much on the edge of Lake Constance, Constance in southern Germany, where John Hus, Jan Hus of Bohemia, the Czech Republic, was burned at the stake. I've been to the place in Oxford, England, where Latimer and Ridley were burned at the stake for their faith in God in 1556. Cranmer was killed in the same way just a little while later. This is what Rome did again and again. Nobody can deny it. I'm not trying to be critical. I am simply telling you that history verifies what the Bible says. And then would think to change times and laws. Now, again, the Church of Rome had a challenge. One might call it a problem. It took over. It took over from where the Caesars had reigned. This is why the Bishop of Rome is referred to as the Pontiff. Have you, have you ever heard to him referred to as the Roman Pontiff? It's, it's the title of the Caesars, Pontifex Maximus. They assumed the title. Paganism came flooding into the church, a lot of false teachings. One of those false teachings was idols. Lots of idols came into the church. And the Church of Rome said, we now have a real problem. Because the Ten Commandments say, don't worship idols, but we've got people bowing down to idols left and right. What do we do? They could have got rid of the idols. The reformers got rid of the idols. Uh, people like, oh, I knew I shouldn't have gone for his name. We did a program about this fellow. We called it the man on the left. People like that guy would actually go so far as to go into these churches during the Reformation, take the idols out and throw them into the river. Now, that's hardcore, I know. The Protestants were against the idols. The Romans said, let's keep the idols. But what do you do about the commandments then? Get rid of the commandment. And so from their official teachings, they removed the second commandment, the one about idols. Some versions of the Bible, they kind of put it back, but they merged it with the first commandment. But that would leave nine commandments. So what did they do about the nine commandments? They split the commandment about coveting in two. So that the ninth commandment says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's stuff. And the tenth one says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. The Bible says they would think to change times and laws. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like you to reflect on a church changing the Ten Commandments. It's absolutely blasphemous. It's unthinkable that human beings would think to do that. But it's true. It happened. And it was predicted in the Holy Bible. And then there's another commandment that was changed. The fourth commandment. Now you read the catechism and the catechism will say, which day is the Sabbath day? And the answer will be given, Saturday is the Sabbath day. And so the question is written, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? And the answer is, because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. Imagine 
church leaders deciding that they would modify a commandment of God, change it so that it means something completely different. I hope you have a pulse because if you do, this should strike you as absolutely outrageous. And if it doesn't, check your pulse. There might be a problem. A church changing the law of God. Can any church do that? Absolutely not. But the Catholic Encyclopedia says the church, after changing the day of rest from the Jewish Sabbath, and it's not the Jewish Sabbath, it's God's Sabbath, from the Jewish Sabbath of the seventh day to the first day of the week, made the third commandment, it's actually the fourth, refer to Sunday as the day to be kept holy as the Lord's day. No church can do that. You see, what's happening is this, a lesser reliance on Jesus for salvation and a greater reliance on a church for salvation. Absolutely no reliance on the word of God, except as the church interprets the word of God. And that's what the church will tell you. You can read the Bible, but we will interpret the Bible. And of course, that's an absolute and utter disaster. No church has the right to change the commandments of God. Imagine how significant this is. Don't pray to God. Pray to a dead human being. Don't confess your sins to God. Confess your sins to a priest. Now, when I was a kid growing up, we had good priests. No doubt about it. I have no, no, no criticism of them. But, I, you know, Father Sheeran on Saturday night, he's at the pub drunk. No joke. And then Sunday, you're coming to him and you're saying, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. And probably hung over, he's saying, I absolve you of your sins. This is a travesty. And I'm sure the church would say that things shouldn't be done that way. But the point is, these are faulty human beings. These are men. We could talk about a whole host of other issues, but we don't have the time to do that right now. Back to our list. This thing would rain for a time and times and half a time for 1260 years. What would happen? Yes. The Vatican's power became absolute in 538 AD, but in 1798, Napoleon sent his general Berthier to the Vatican City, where the Pope, oddly enough, his name was Pius, was taken captive. He died in exile a while later, and the Vatican's temporal dominion was taken away. The Vatican was no longer ruling as a state, merely as a church. It ruled for 1260 years. Even today, it is a system that isn't based on the word of God. It's based on sacraments and penances and confession to a priest. It is based on tradition, and that was not God's intention. Now, when you compare the little horn of Daniel 7 to the beast of Revelation chapter 13, you find they're the same. Ten horns, a deadly wound. They receive worship. They are religio-political. There is blasphemies. 1260 years, persecution again. A deadly wound. The Bible said all the world would wonder after the beast. And it's happened right before your eyes. And you just said, oh, you might remember. You might not. Communism fell. In the early 1990s. Now, before communism fell, a man named Lech Wałęsa became a global icon because he led a movement in Poland called Solidarity. And Time magazine, Time magazine writes about, wrote about how the United States got involved and how the Vatican City got involved to work with movements or through movements like Solidarity and others. Read the title. How Reagan and the Pope conspired to assist, uh, this is the subtitle, to assist Poland's solidarity movement 
and hasten the demise of communism. Now, this was the most significant political change of the 20th century. Who brought it about? The United States. You're not surprised by that. And the Vatican City. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that churches shouldn't do good things, and most people would agree that bringing communism down was indeed a good thing. But it demonstrates to you how powerful this church is. It's a church and a nation. Now, I hope you'll believe me when I tell you that I'm not here today to speak against individuals. Martin Luther didn't rail against individuals who went to mass or went to confession. His beef was with the system, the system that led people in a direction they really should never have gone. This is just what happens when the Bible is not your guide. When you say, ah, yes, the Bible, good book, but I'll listen to what the man says. I'll listen to what the church leader says. I'll do what the priest says. I'll follow what the Pope says. I'll obey what my pastor says. Instead of the Bible, then you're on very thin ice. And this is a problem in the eyes of God because God knows that when Jesus comes back, there's just going to be two classes of people on this earth. Those who are following the Bible and those who are not. The lost and the saved. The lost will have been deceived by human beings. The saved will have determined that nothing would lead them away from following the word of God. Think with me for a moment about this great battle between good and evil. Long ago in heaven, an angel for some inexplicable reason said, I want to be like the most high God. He wanted worship. He was cast out of heaven. He came to the earth very quickly. Adam and Eve were on his side. Jesus stepped in and said, no, no, no. I will give to the human family repentance. You'll do what? The angels of heaven must have said, you'll do what? Jesus said, I'm going to die for these people. Imagine the divine son of God, the eternal son of God, being willing to die for human beings. They deserve to die. Imagine somebody receiving the death penalty and the prime minister of the country, whoever that's going to be, stepping in and saying, no, no, let that fall on me. You said, no, that what in the world? Or some kind kindergarten teacher. She steps forward and says, I know that person's a scoundrel, but I'd like to die in their place. You, it's even difficult to imagine, but it's what happened on a much greater scale. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. And God has been trying to convince us from that time to this that he loves us and we are better off surrendering our lives to him. When we don't surrender our lives to him, we just have problem after problem. And you may not perceive them as problems, but in the judgment, they'll absolutely be seen as problems. He or she that hath the son hath life. The one who does not have the son of God does not have life. How is it with you? Do you have the son of God? And if you do, how are you expressing that? God wanted everybody to be saved. He inspired the writing of scripture, knowing that if we live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, we'd be okay. God says, look what I'm giving you. I'm giving you this. It's the Bible. This is my word. You know, if, if my kids want to know something, well, okay, not now, but when they were younger, they'd come to me and they'd say, dad, what's this about? And dad loved the opportunity to demonstrate how wise he was. And I would explain to them uh, the answer to their question. Dad, we don't know what this is. What's this? What's this word? What's that place? What's this thing? Dad would tell them. 
We have a dad. The Bible even refers to him as Abba. It's like daddy. We can go to our, our eternal father and say, what's this? What's the right way to go? Lord, show me your direction. And he says, I will. And look, it, you, you've got me on call at any time right here in the scriptures. Follow the Bible. The devil was just beside himself. What do I do? They have the word of God. I know what I'll do. I'll raise up people who would teach people the word of God, but they bend it this way or they twist it that way. And along came a church, you read in the Bible, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And the church says, yes, we agree, but confess them to us. Wait a moment. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Yes, yes, but that really means come to us. The Bible says, don't worship graven images. And the church says, oh, we're not worshiping them. They're just, when we bow down before them, it's not worship, it's something else. And you say, hold on a minute. What's that all about? The Bible says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And the church said, yes, sure. But that's Sunday. We changed the day. So somewhere along the line, you've got to say, hey, where's my faith? Where's my faith? Is my faith in God or is it in man? Is my faith in the Bible or is my faith in human beings? Am I a Christian? Have I accepted Jesus into my life as my Lord and Savior? And if I have, am I being deceived? Am I being led astray? I said to you on the opening night of this seminar, if you will follow the Bible, you'll be okay. But sometimes that takes a little bit of courage. Sometimes it takes you saying, no, I've been lied to, or that's not biblical, or that's not the will of God. And I know my family may believe one thing, but God is speaking to my heart and I have to honor Jesus. Choose you this day whom you will serve. I hope you can say, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God wants your heart. And why would you not give him your heart when you behold Jesus dying on an old rugged cross? Some scoundrel plunged a spear into his side and outflowed blood and water. Jesus' heart, they say, ruptured in his chest cavity. He had nothing more to give. He died of a broken heart. And he went through that for you because he loves you, loved you and loves you. In Earth's final days, there'll be two classes of people on the planet. Bottom line is there'll be one group of people who love God with their whole heart, soul, mind and strength. Because they've looked to the cross and they beheld Jesus there. They've thought about this great plan of salvation and they recognize that God's heart is a heart of love. They've been willing to deny themselves. Jesus said it's necessary to take up your cross sometimes, to deny yourself. There are some things that perhaps we want selfishly, but we say that's not the will of God. And then we pray, God, change my heart, make my will your will. And you can experience every day knowing that you're forgiven, knowing that God loves you, knowing that he'll pour his spirit on you and in you, through you, so that you can be kept. And you say, but I'm weak. And God says, ah, it's okay, I'm strong. Let's team up together. You say, but I don't know so much. God says, I'm wise. It's all right. Let's get our minds blended together. You say, I'm prone to fall. And God says, it's all right. I can hold you up. That's what I do. It's my job. I'm God after all. We realize that we can get through this life if we depend on God. It's a minefield, this world, and a spiritual minefield. Because there's an enemy that's done everything he possibly can to get you somehow. If not this way, then that way. Well, which is the right way? Jesus is the right way. He said, I am the way, 
the truth and the life. And if you'll yield your heart to him, if you'll invite him into your life, he'll change you. He'll bless you. He'll fulfill you. He'll strengthen you. He'll keep you. He'll guide you. He'll hold you up. He'll protect you. If you'll let him do that, he'll gladly do that for you. You know, it was just a few years ago, an Aussie man was sailing in a yacht off the coast of New South Wales. And the yacht broke down and he ended up getting caught in a violent storm and he sent out a mayday signal, but then even his radio broke. And emergency services knew he was out there somewhere, but they didn't know where he was. They'd sent out searchers to find him and bring him back to safety. They, they couldn't find him. So they hatched an idea. They knew he was out there in the general direction of the flight path to Kingsford Smith International Airport. They asked airplanes flying into land in Sydney, please be on the lookout for this guy. And Air Canada 777 with a full load of people traveling at about 12,000 meters altitude dropped to about 1,200 meters. Descended is probably a better word to use. And the captain and the crew asked the passengers, please look out the window. There's a lost sailor. We want to try to find the man. They scanned the water. They were looking down there, looking for that needle in a haystack. And suddenly somebody said, I see him. I think I do. You look too. The eyes were all focused in that one area. They found the man. So they told the captain. The captain got the coordinates. He sent them to the emergency services. And they sent out a search boat. They found the man and brought him back home. His mother said, I had been praying for him the whole time. He was adrift on the sea, caught in a storm, adrift in the sea. But then help came to him from above. Help came to him from above. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been caught in one of the storms of life? Sure you have. Have you ever felt like you've been adrift on a stormy sea or even a calm sea? Sure you have. Have you ever felt like that you don't know how to get back there? That maybe your hope is gone? Sure you have. Have you ever felt like because your problem is within, you need help from above? Sure you can. Or sure you have. So what did God do? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Can you believe in that son today? You can. Jesus believes in you. He died for you. He knows what can happen in your life when your heart and his heart are connected. He knows what can happen in your life when you open your heart up to him. He said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I will come in and we will dine together. Let Jesus come into your heart today. Allow Jesus to bring to you help from above. 